Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, Dalhousie University's Manager of Discipline and Appeals, Bob Mann, looks at how Canadian post-secondary schools are dealing with chat GPT. Calgary MP Michelle Rempel-Garner has a lot to say about government overspending and their definition of fiscal prudence. And James Lester, co-founder of Sons of Vancouver Distillery in North Van, talks about being awarded makers of the best whiskey in Canada. So let's get started. We turn our attention to chat GPT, several Canadian universities crafting policies on this popular artificial intelligence tool that is raising plagiarism concerns in the education center to the point where it's already been banned in public schools in New York and L.A. and uh, in Paris, uh, the University of Sciences Po uh, has already banned the use of chat GPT. So what are Canadian universities up to? We're delighted to welcome Bob Mann from Dalhousie University in Halifax. Mr. Mann is the Manager of Discipline and Appeals at Dell. He's uh, in our time zone in Fort St. John, B.C. today to talk about Jet GPT. Bob Mann, good morning and welcome, sir. Sterling, how are you? Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us, Bob. This is something... Uh, now, how long have you, as a as an administrator, at particularly in the position that you enjoy of Manager of Discipline Appeals, how long have you been aware of this, this technology, Bob, and had an opportunity to sort of square yourself to at least deal with the onset? Well, we've had academics in our institution who've, you know, had a very keen interest in in this kind of technology and they've been tracking it for a while um certainly people who work in uh computer science in particular have been very keen on seeing the evolution of these these tools so they've been aware of it for a while but it it really wasn't until the fall last year that that a couple of people popped up and said you know this thing is evolving to the point where it can um and the thing that was immediately pointed out was it can it can write emails Mm -hmm. based on very simple prompts and prompts and communications and and it, it seems to be somewhat, you know, but for a few little errors and mistakes and factual things that can be corrected, uh, it, it, it seems to do a pretty decent job of, uh, of drafting these things in a way that, that I think someone paying only a little bit of attention wouldn't be able to detect. So now, obviously, there will be some kind of detection programming uh, underway, and I imagine there's already some software that is developed to deal with chat GPT presence. What do you know about that? What, what can you tell us about that? Well, that's still emerging, too. I mean, like a number of other services that, you know, are prone to being misused, chat GPT has, has come out and said, you know, that they're developing detection tools so that, you know, if you have a, a, a piece of piece of work or a piece of writing that you think has been generated by AI, uh, you can feed it into this program and it will it will identify some markers and, and tell you right. uh, that has that has some limited application. Of course, there's nothing to stop a person. I'm not, not trying to give anybody ideas here, but <laughs> as 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 with any way in which a person might um, try to gain an unfair advantage in an academic exercise, like, let's say, asking your uncle. Uh, to write a paper for you. Uh, you can take that piece of work and change it and modify it and paraphrase some things and make it somewhat undetectable. So there are some limits to what uh, software like that can do. And there, there is already, uh, you know, detection software that you can feed a piece of work in that can tell you portions of it have come 
uh, from the internet or from other sources that are in its database. So it's not really a new thing, but uh, uh, it is something new with this kind of technology. How prevalent is it on campus already, Bob? I know lots of students are dipping a toe in the pool, taking a run at this thing. What are you able to do to discern already? Well, I can't speak for uh, any institution other than the one that I work for, but I will say that we're still in the very early days of, of this use at uh, Dalhousie. I, I will be quite honest. Um, I have an eye on virtually every case that, that comes through, whether they're handled at the faculty level or whether they rise to the seriousness of, of the level where my discipline committee engages with it. But I will say we haven't seen a case yet. Mm, we've, not yet had a, we've, not, we've, we've not yet had a case where an instructor has come forward and said, I think that I have a piece of work here that has been generated by artificial intelligence. And uh, I'm personally, I'm not, I'm not overly surprised by that um, uh, as, as we're still sort of getting our heads around, well, what, what would this even look like and what, what form would it take? As Canadian schools, post-secondary schools are trying to develop some policies around chat GPT, Bob, are you in constant conversation with your peers across the country in order to at least develop common policies? Well, we have, uh, now that's a very interesting question and I've, uh, it's one that I've been asked a number of times. Okay. Like we, we don't, at the moment, and again, I can only speak for Dalhousie, and for, to answer your question, Sterling, yes, I've been in contact with um, a, a lot of my colleagues, and there have been some common resources generated. At the moment, uh, we have a policy, as do most universities, that says in order to meaningfully evaluate the work of a student, we require that work to be the student's own. Sure. So t- to a certain extent... We don't need any new policies to deal specifically with ChatGPT. For quite some time now, we've had, uh, for quite a number of years now, we've had internet usage. I remember being an undergraduate student uh, when you could not avail yourself of the internet Mm -hmm. um, to do research. You had to turn to books. I remember when the internet came along and some faculty members said, I don't want you to use the internet because you can't trust those sources. They're not true academic sources. It's got to come from a print journal or a book. That seems quaint and kind of silly now. Yes, it does. Um, to suggest that. So, you know, we, our, our policies are quite clear and state that if a student turns in work that is that can be demonstrated to not be their own, there, are, there are, are, are systems and processes in place to deal with that. That hasn't changed. What I'm more interested in is what goes on at the uh, program level and even the class level or the course level, because to a certain extent, it doesn't make sense for an entire institution to say, look, we've got a faculty of medicine, we've got a faculty of law, a faculty of science, faculty of computer science. We're going to create a blanket policy that applies to everyone, no matter what the context is, that says how you can and can't use this. That sort of doesn't make any sense when you consider the use that one might make of ChatGPT. And I, when I say use, I mean the beneficial use sure. in a particular course. If it's a computer coding course, a writing course, uh, a, a science or a STEM course, this is a tool that has some possibilities and opportunities for learning that weren't offered before. So the, ge- the conversations that I'm interested in generating at Dalhousie, at least, and I'm hearing this from other colleagues, is to say, Let's first make sure that we understand what this thing does, what it can and can't do. And believe me, there's a lot that it can't do. 
and I want to emphasize that. And let's talk about uh, different applications. There may be some courses where a, a faculty member would be quite uh, appropriate and right in saying, look, you've got to sit down and write this yourself. Sure. Um, to say nothing of the evaluation uh, value of it, we want you to actually understand and learn how to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. You have to be able. You have to be able to do it. You paid lots of tuition. There is no benefit to you personally. It would be like if someone created an artificial intelligence program that could lift weights for you at the gym. Interesting what, stuff. What, 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 what purpose is that? Exactly. A bit of a policy minefield, Bob. I appreciate you're taking a few moments out of your trip to BC to, to uh, share the the quandary that you and your peer group are dealing with. This is not as, as straightforward as perhaps it seems on the surface of things. Thanks very much for this. I would welcome the opportunity to continue our conversation down the road a little bit, too. I'd be, I'd be more than happy to do that with you, Sterling. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to welcome MP Michelle Rempel Garner, who sits for Calgary Nose Hill. Back to the program, she joins us from YYC, the Calgary Airport. Michelle, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's good to have you with us. You heading back to the hill, or are you uh, off to uh, other points in Alberta this morning? Heading back to the hill. Uh, it's the First Minister's health meeting coming up, right? So uh, right. it'd be a good time to be in town. Listen, I want to talk to you about a couple of things, uh, including this, uh, this shall we say, overpaying for accommodation at the Calgary Weston. Uh, but first of all, our question of the day today, Michelle, and you're an MP. I'm interested in your take on this. Should Canada have shot down that Chinese spy balloon while it was over our airspace a few days ago? Well, I know that that is a question that is going to be raised by my colleagues this week on the Hill, for sure. Um, I think it's very concerning um, that uh, the response played out as it did. Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, you know, the first step is to get more information on what happened. And uh, that's why we're all heading back to Ottawa today. So your listeners can certainly uh, stay tuned for more information on that. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about some numbers that uh, were released recently from the Public Health Agency of Canada. $6.8 million to put 15 travelers in a 14-day quarantine at the Western Calgary Airport Hotel. That works out to almost half a million dollars per person, more than thirty-two grand per night. Uh, just a little on the excessive side, wouldn't you say? It was shocking. Well, it's shocking and not shocking. Like, we've seen a lot of waste from this government. But the key thing to to highlight on this, on top of what you just said, is that those expenses were incurred after COVID restrictions were eased. So there's really no justification for the expense. You know, I've been, you know, the line my my staff and I were using when we found out, we're like, it's like they forgot to check out. Um, But, you know, there's there's really no humor in the situation. At a time when the government has to get uh, deficits, it's inflationary deficit spending under control. Waste like this is just unacceptable because it's, you know, leading to the cost of living crisis. So um, a lot the government has a lot of explaining to do on this. And uh, we were asking questions about it last week. Well, it's just it's so cavalier of them, Michelle. At the same kind, the same time, rather, we saw the head of Canada Revenue very cavalierly shrug off fifteen billion dollars in overpayments in COVID uh, wage benefits as not being worth their time to pursue to try to collect at least even a portion of it would represent a significant amount of money. Again, pretty cavalier attitudes toward the public purse. Well, you know, and what kind of a message does that say to a taxpayer who um, filed 
plays by the rules, files their taxes on time, does everything honestly, and then gets like this huge audit for a couple thousand dollars. Right. I, know I have a lot of people in my constituency who are saying exactly that. It just, um, it, 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 it really smacks of a government that's out of touch and doesn't understand what's happening on the ground. It's, you know, I'm, I'm here in Calgary. Cost of living crisis here is really bad. People want to see a government that they can have some faith in, and they're surely not seeing that here. And again, you know, 450000 bucks for one person to stay at a hotel just around the corner from here, that, that could buy, you know, a fairly, a fairly nice house. And uh, there's a lot of people that are, that's just an unaffordable dream now. So um, a lot of explaining to do uh, on behalf of the Trudeau Liberal government. Interesting piece in the National Post today, Michelle. 67% agree Canada is broken. This is Mr. Polyab's statement. He's been saying it for weeks. Uh, and it's one thing as a political slogan, a bumper sticker, that kind of thing. But when two-thirds of the population go, you know, he's right. Uh, this is a new Leger poll out this morning in the National Post, by the way. So all of a sudden, it's, it has more teeth than just a sloganeering, doesn't it? Absolutely. And... You know, I think to drill into that a little bit, where we've seen Justin Trudeau go on on his on his communication around a lot of the things people raise when they when they talk about Canada be, be, being broken, be it the cost of living, be it health care, et cetera. He does one of two things. He either says uh, it's not that bad. So he diminishes the crisis or he says something to the effect of it's not his fault. But the, the thing is, like, after eight years of being in government, it kind of is his fault. And at the very least, he needs to be providing solutions befitting of somebody in his role, which is the Prime Minister of Canada. So I think that's why you see numbers like that, is it's just people across the political spectrum responding to a government that is out of touch and doesn't seem to care about how bad it is out there. And so uh, in terms of budget, and, and, and we see uh, Christian Freeland talking about fiscal prudence suddenly uh, emerging as, as an, uh, a guideline for the next federal budget, which is due in probably uh, 40 days or so. Uh, are you expecting anything in the federal budget that might in some way reflect the sentiments of two-thirds of the people of Canada? Well, I certainly have seen no acknowledgement of the waste that this government has undertaken when it comes to inflationary spending, like what we were just talking about. This hotel quarantine thing is mm-hmm. a perfect example exactly. of a government who, like, has the, the public does not have any faith that this government can bring inflationary spending under control. And so, you know, I think it's probably a little too late. Um, I think Christia Freeland has probably always wanted to be the prime minister and is now going, oh, I'm really attached to Justin Trudeau. What do I say to try and trick people into thinking that, you know, we're not one and the same? Um, But that's all politics. That's not going to solve um, a lot of the issues that are facing Canadians. And step one is this government acknowledging the crisis that our country is in and then putting forward a plan to fix it. So that's on them. But we're certainly going to keep holding them to account this week. You're heading back to Ottawa just in time to catch the federal uh, provincial leaders meeting on health care. What are you expecting, if anything at all? Well, I I expect action. I know this is a huge issue in my community. Um, There's a lot of people who have noted that, you know, the federal government seems to always point fingers at the provinces and tried to abdicate its responsibility mm-hmm. to address the brokenness of the healthcare system, which is a top priority for many Canadians. 
um, you know, the brokenness of the healthcare system has a human face. And so, you know, I want to see Justin Trudeau, rather than pointing his fingers at the provinces and trying to divest his responsibility, really take a leadership role and saying, look, the, the system was broken before the pandemic. Um, you know, we had two and a half years of COVID restrictions to try to diminish the effect on the healthcare system. That did not work. Um, and now we've got backlogs for diagnostic imaging, for surgeries and more. Um, this is, he really has to, um, you know, be a prime minister. I don't have a lot of faith in that. And I wish all of my uh, colleagues at the provincial level who are going to be trying to tell him the same thing, good luck this week. Uh, and we're certainly there to support them. Michelle Rempel-Garner, I know you have a plane to catch, and I'm not going to be the person responsible for <laughs> your missing it. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll talk again soon. I appreciate your joining us today. Thanks for having me. As we turn our attention to, well, Canadian whiskey, good old rye whiskey, uh, from North Vancouver, palm trees and tropical breeze, the best whiskey in Canada. It is a product of the Sons of Vancouver Distillery in North Vancouver. James Lester is co-founder, co-owner of Sons of Vancouver Distillery and joins us this morning to take a victory lap. James, good morning. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. It's good to have you with us. Now, tell us a little bit about, uh, first of all, about Sons of Vancouver, and then we'll dive into the into this specific prize and the blend. Uh, but talk about the, the distillery a little bit. How long have you been around? Yeah, you bet. We've been in North Van for about uh, eight years now, and um, I had a little bit of distilling history working at a few uh, a few bourbon distilleries before we opened in Vancouver here. Um, you know, uh, you can't rush a good thing. Right. So we opened in 2015, but we didn't really start putting whiskey out until a year or two ago. So what have you been distilling between then, then and now? Were you doing like vodka and gin and, and other yeah, spirits? Yeah, exactly, exactly like that. And then just putting whiskey away and waiting, you know, crossing our fingers. Ah, so it, it's, it's, it's really, it's just an aging process. Now let's go to the contest. Last year, Crown Royal won. Now the year before that, James, it was Canadian Club. These are names that every rye drinker in the country would recognize. Now this year, there's a rye called Palm Trees, and Tropical Breeze, best whiskey in Canada. A lot of rye drinkers are going, what? Where's that from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this was a whiskey that we released in probably August, in like August of last year. Okay. Um, unfortunately, the way that this works is we release a whiskey, then we enter a bottle in the competition. The competition, you know, six, eight months later. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, everything's sold out right now. There was a couple of liquor stores that, um, you know, carried in Kelowna or on the island or in Vancouver here. Um, but the night of the event, anyone that was there uh, searched out those bottles and picked them up the next morning. Interesting stuff. So now, uh, because was it a once-in-a-lifetime one-off, James? Or now that you've discovered the formula that really takes you to the top of the mountain, <laughs> uh, can we look forward to more production of palm trees and tropical breeze rye? Yeah, we can definitely look forward to more production. Um, there'll be a couple releases in the middle, though. So uh, we got we have another rye whiskey coming out um, probably in the next two weeks here. The best thing to do is just to sign up for the mailing list. Phoning is not going to get you to the front of the line. Um, the mailing list is on the front page of our website. This whiskey coming up is uh, it's 100% rye, 
and it's bottled at cask strength. So you're looking at like 63, 64% alcohol in that range. Mm-hmm. And um, it's modeled after uh, it's modeled after a style of rye whiskey that's popular in America, not so popular in Canada. So we're kind of just moving around and um, uh, trying out different things at this point. Um, really trying to like express the the rye grain as a style that hasn't been done before. Hmm. You know, when you go to Scotland, there's seven different regions. All with different styles of whiskey. You no got question. super fruity, you got salty, you got smoky. PT, that's but right. Rye yeah. is kind of just rye has just been one thing forever, mm-hmm. and we're trying to like demonstrate that. And I think what we really did with palm trees was that we pulled out a lot of fruity notes um, that aren't characteristic for this style of grape. Now you mentioned you had some uh, previous distilling experience working with bourbon, and uh, that come back to help you out because, as I understand it, I'm on SonsOfVancouver.ca, James, and it says right here, 100% rye aged in X bourbon barrels, <laughs> and and finished in Caribbean rum casks. So, how long did it sit in X bourbon barrels, and then how long does the, the finishing process take? Oh, you just found our secret sauce right there. Um, <laughs> it's on the, the internet, uh, the, man. It has to be true. <laughs> <laughs> the bourbon barrels are uh, are three to four years. Okay. And then it finished in the rum cask for um, four months. Oh, okay. And so what sort of batch, what size batch did you make? Yeah, so this one was really small. This is probably one of our smallest. Um, there was less than 300 bottles in this release. And... Uh, we went through all of our oldest barrels, we went through about 100 barrels, and we found the fruitiest ones. We found the barrels that are like, you know, we call them like anomalies, or we call them honeypots in the industry. And um, they're like, just for whatever reason, these are barrels aged at a, you know, a certain height um, that had maybe a certain combination of oak that was cut down in the fall, the spring, the winter, or the summer. There's 50, 50 staves that make up a barrel. So you're kind of like, you're in a bit of a lottery, and every once in a while, you find these barrels that are they're incredibly fruity, like mm-hmm. tons of banana, tons of mango, coconut. Uh, we pulled those together. We blended them. And then we finished uh, a portion of it in rum casks and then blended the rum casks back in, added a little more of, um, of that uh, used bourbon wood, and then... Uh, just to drive it home, and then that was our that was our final release. So palm trees, of tropical notes, and a tropical breeze. The one that won best Canadian whiskey was aged a total of what six years before it was bottled. Oh, even less than that. Oh, okay. But typically, yep. I, I'm looking at the website, and, and uh, Palm Trees and a Tropical Breeze, interesting name for a whiskey. You've got another picture of a bottle, and the label on this one says, Cigarettes on a Leather Jacket. <laughs> <laughs> so who's the naming? Who's the, are you in charge of naming there, James? Uh, there's, there's three of us, and to be honest with you, that's the hardest part. Oh, Okay, I would have thought there would have been a little more physical labor that would have been a little more demanding, but okay. <laughs> but at least you get to sample while you're trying to come up with names, right? Yeah, I'll tell you, we're really good at distilling, but we're not poets. <laughs> so now, you, once the, the Palm Trees and Tropical Breeze Rye won Canadian Whiskey of the Year, you said immediately all remaining bottles from that batch were snapped up literally in a heartbeat. Did you manage to at least increase the price and make some serious profit on a prize winner? 
<laughs> no, not at all. They're gone. <laughs> so now, but you've got a bit of a reputation, and there's 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 an upside and a downside to it because the upside is well, if, if the last one did that, holy cow, what's the next one going to be like? So there's a little pressure to improve upon, and on the other side, though, there's also a greater demand. So uh, how do you respond to that? Yeah, we've kind of just been. Um well, we've been doing the same thing we always do. We've been putting whiskey away in the meantime. Right. Um, we've been talking about trying to pull that release together again, but but it's so difficult with those, like, you know, we went through 100 barrels to find those really fruity ones. It's going to be it's gonna be another year until we at least can, like, move on to, like, you know, the next batch of aged whiskey that was put away in, whatever, 2020, mm-hmm. to try and find those barrels again. You know, the same barrels, the same age, and there's no guarantee they're going to be there. Interesting stuff. Um, well, I, I, I'm fresh out of time. I'm grateful for yours on a Sunday morning. And from all of us, uh, congratulations to you and your team at Sons of Vancouver Distillery. Uh, the website, by the way, friends, is sonsofvancouver.ca. James, are you open to the public? Can folks come by and have a taste? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, we're doing cocktails Monday to Sunday, 5 to 9 p.m. And what's the address, please? 1431 Crown Street, like the King's Hat, in North Vancouver. Excellent. Congratulations to all involved, James. Thanks so much for doing this today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.